0: This morning, would you turn your Bibles to, new, to the New Testament book of 1 Peter in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to cover verses 5, 6, and 7 today. We are winding down our series entitled Sojourners on the book of 1 Peter. And next week, we will conclude our 16-week series. We've been in this for 16 weeks. Last week, Pastor Adam talked to us about what Peter writes about in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 through 4. And in verse 1, he begins a section and uses the phrase, to the elders among you, is what Peter writes. To the elders among you. And um, maybe Peter is addressing the older, maybe the elderly here. Or maybe. He's addressing those who have the title or the office of elder in a church, but definitely, like Pastor Adam talked about, he is addressing um, those who have the responsibility of shepherding others. In our text today, however, Peter is transitioning the subject of leadership to include younger women and younger men in the rest of the church, and he introduces a whole new subject, a whole new topic submission and humility. And as we read through the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know that Peter is that guy. Peter's that guy who jumped the gun all the time. He liked being first. He was first to speak up. He was first to act out, first to step up. He was the first to walk on water. He was the first to preach. He was the guy who Jesus had to pull aside a number of times to say, hey, Peter, let's Let's eat some humble pie over here for a little bit. Um, so let's take a look at our, our text for today. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5, 6, and 7. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's God's word for us today. You know, humility, the the word, the subject of humility is not popular in our world today. It's not touted in talk shows. It's not celebrated in commencement speeches. It's not commended in diversity seminars. It's not listed in organizational or business mission and vision statements. The basic reason for this is not hard to understand, because true, authentic humility can only survive in the presence of God. Where God goes, humility goes. And you might say that humility follows God like a shadow. We can expect to find humility applauded in our, in our society as often as God is applauded, which really means almost never. So our current culture air that we all breathe is hostile to humility, and our text today is utterly foreign to our times and yet utterly necessary. And what's said here does not, if what's said here is, does not take root in our lives, we will not be a Christian church for much longer and we will not be salt and light for a broken and perishing world. So let's take a look at our text today. And, and we'll call this Lessons on Submission and Humility. And the first lesson is this in your notes. The first lesson is learn to submit. It won't be easy. Learn to submit. It's not going to be easy. I, I want to confess to you and, and um, be vulnerable with you this morning. Um, I even told my wife for the first time, we've been married 32 years, and I um, confessed to her yesterday, um, and she didn't know. Growing up, I, I learned about submission and humility through some very colorful examples. As a child, I looked up to those who were older and stronger and more powerful than me. I called them heroes. Most people called them professional wrestlers. On Saturday morning, I would sit in front of the TV and, uh, and watch the likes of John Tolos, Rocky Johnson, nod your head if you're with me, um, Mr. Fuji, um, the Luchadors, the Mendoza Brothers, um, and Freddie Blassie, of course. <laughs> well, I got an amen on that one, I think, huh? You know, it was so exciting at the time. Massive men complaining and arguing about everything, dressed in colorful athletic wear, some with masks, bouncing off the ropes, flying through the air, flips and jump kicks, roundhouse punches, and no one gets hurt. They were some of the greatest athletes ever. My older siblings, my siblings, and my parents did not understand the science and the artistry of pro wrestling. <laughs> they kept calling it fake. So from the school of pro wrestling that I studied under for a couple of years, I learned that humility is not honorable, and I learned that submission is not the strategy of a winner. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter writes, In the same way, and... He's speaking of the verses before in the same way. You who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Now Peter writes in verses 1 through 4 of, of chapter 5 instructions to elder leaders to care for people, to shepherd them well, to, uh, to shepherd them and lead them, not for what they could do for you, but for who they are. Then in verse 5 he writes to those who are younger. Humbly submit to your elder leaders, he writes, the ones who shepherd you so well. And when Peter was a young man, he was not exactly the model of one who was humble or submissive. we know that from reading the Gospels. And here it says to the younger, he says, you need to start with submission. And there's so many examples of submission and humility in the Bible. One of the classic examples is the Old Testament story of King Saul and David. God's people, Israel, are always led by judges, leaders, women and men who were a mouthpiece for God. And over time, God's people didn't want to judge, and so they kept complaining to God, we want a king like everybody else. And finally God says, okay, I'll give you a king. But he says, you're not going to be happy with this king. And so, Paul becomes, so Saul becomes king, and God says, you must follow him even though he's not that great of a guy. And at first Saul looks good. He looks the part of a king, but he doesn't have the character of a king. And after a while, King St- Saul starts to make his own decisions. He stops following God. And God finally tells Saul that he's done with him. And with that, God calls a new king. And no one this king is no one Israel would have even thought of. The future king was a young shepherd boy, skinny, gangly, smelled kind of funky kind of pimply, and the the epic account of David and Goliath then takes place where David, this young shepherd boy, soon to be king, slays the mighty man, and Saul and everyone else starts to notice David, like, wow, this guy, he's he's an up-and-comer, and Saul gets jealous and wants to kill David, and so David runs and hides, and he has a bunch of trusted men who are with him, But Saul pursues David and wants to hunt him down. And one day, as Saul and his army are hunting for David, Saul says he needs to use the facilities. And so he goes into a cave to relieve himself. It just so happens that David, in that dark cave, David and his men are hiding out in that same cave that Saul's in. And David and his men think, wow, that's Saul, he's pretty vulnerable right now in this cave that we're hiding in, here's our opportunity. We can take Saul out before he takes us out, but instead David just kind of creeps up to Saul while he's assuming that position, and he clips a piece of his robe off as if to say, Saul, I could have killed, killed you. I, I got you, Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 5, it says this, Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. David says, I'm not going to go against the authority of God that, that God has put in place. And even though I have every right to, even though God's called me to be king one day, I'm not going to do it. God has given authority, put authority in each and every one of our lives. And he's appointed them, whether they be good or whether they be bad. And we are to humbly submit to these authorities. It's a choice to say, yes, God, I understand you are in the ultimate authority in my life. And submission starts with understanding that God is the ultimate authority because it's not about you. And so I want you to ask yourself this on your notes. Ask yourself, is God my first response or my last resort? Is God my first response or my last resort? And I think a smart move in your life dealing with submission is to get yourself some friends, some some trusted people in your life. You can call them mentors. You can call them disciplers. You can call them accountability partners. You have to get someone in your life that will help you out with making God your first response in your life. I've got two brothers, two men in my life that I call brothers. They're, I'm so close with them. I've been, we've been friends and partners for so long that my kids call them uncle, and it's true. It's not just this cultural sort of thing. They are uncles to my kids. We watch out for each other. We don't compete with each other, which is so important when you have someone like this in your life. I will drop almost anything if they needed me, and they would do the same for me. And we're constantly checking in with each other, talking with each other, texting each other, having lunch with each other talking about the most vulnerable sinful things in our life to one another so that we can get it outside of us so that someone knows what else is going on in the deep parts of our life and we're always constantly checking in with each other and saying is god your first response is god your first choice not your last resort we always have to remind each other in these days to keep it light and to keep laughing about the joyful things in life. Is God my first response or my last resort? The first lesson we can learn in this is learn to submit because it, it's not going to be easy. The second lesson is this, to choose humility. Choose humility. It doesn't come naturally. It, none of us, I don't think, were born with humility. It just doesn't come naturally. And and Peter writes in chapter 5 verse 5, "All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble." I love this phrase, it, the phrase of "clothe yourself with humility." Each of us chooses what we clothe ourselves with. Now, think about this. Everyone goes about choosing what we wear in a different way. I mean, we all have a sort of a different sort of way we decide what we're going to wear. But do this with me right now. Um, Look at, at what you have on right now. Go ahead. If you haven't already, go ahead and just take a look at, don't look at someone else, look at what you have on today. And let me ask you this question. How did you come to the decision on what you put on to wear today. How did you do that? Is it the weather? Did you, did you check your weather app and go, oh, it's going to be pretty warm today, but I look outside and it's foggy. What's going on here, right? Did, was it the weather? Is that what, how you chose what you're going to wear today, or was it the season? It's fall now, so we should be wearing sweaters and scarves and and things like that, right? Or was it the calendar? Because some people say after Labor Day, you never wear short sleeves or you never wear white. Is that right? You never wear white? So all you wearing white out there, that's not how you make your decisions at at least. Or um, I'm not in the mood for, you know, I'm in the mood for what I'm wearing today. So you base what you wear on a mood that you have or a feeling that you have, or maybe it was the only thing that was clean. And I hope it was clean, at, at, at least. And, and that's what you put on. Or what colors you look good in. Or maybe you think, I'm coming to worship at, at the church building over at Nova. And so, what is appropriate to wear for, for worship today? And so, everyone has this idea. We go through this, this sort of this, uh, uh, process of deciding what we're going to wear. And Peter says, Not just to the elder and not just to the younger. He says the words, he writes, all of you now. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Everyone must choose daily to put on humility in all of your interactions and all of your relations with one another. When I was a preteen, I, I dressed myself most of the time, except when we were at family wedding, and then my mom or my sister would you know, put out my suit and tie my tie, and, or my dad would tie my tie and, and all of that. Um, but my dad had a family rule that when you sat down at the dinner table, you had to have clean hands and a clean face. You had to wash your hands, you had to wash your face. And you had to wear a shirt that wasn't white, like a white T-shirt. You could not wear a white T-shirt because that was underwear. I tried to get away with, well, this has got a print on it, so it's a white T-shirt. And he says, no, it can't be white. Couldn't wear underwear to the, to the dinner table. And no hats were allowed. <laughs> As a teenager, though, I, I tested that. And uh, we argued... And he won all all the time. And so that was that. And I even tried this, that I would say, I'm going to go to dinner at so-and-so's house, a friend's house, and I would test him by wearing my white underwear (laughs) and a hat. And my dad would say, even when you have dinner at a friend's house, even if they don't have the same rules that we have the same rules apply. And I would scream and yell and stomp my feet and say, why, right? And his answer was profound. He says, because wherever you go, you represent the Mietas. As a Christ follower, it doesn't matter if your non-church, not-yet-believer friends are a bunch of arrogant, competitive egomaniacs. It doesn't matter. God says, you're part of my family, and my family clothes ourself with humility. And and there is a reason for this. Peter writes that the father will always oppose the proud and give favor to the humble. And so ask yourself this this question. This is an interesting question. How am I going to do or how am I doing with what God has given me? With, with where I'm at right now, how am I doing with what God has given me? Are you satisfied with your life? Are you content? Are you, are you peaceful? Because here's what the world will send to you and is sending to you all the time. This current culture will berate you with negative messages about who you are and what you have. They will say you are not good enough and so you need to try harder. You need to have more. This current culture will say that that you, need, that you need more. Don't you want more for your life? This current culture will say you're not attractive enough. This current culture will say you are not funny enough, you're not smart enough, you're not skinny enough, you're not muscular enough, you're not skilled enough. You could do better. And I say we should be the church family that, has, that changes that culture That cultural message that you're not enough, that we should be the church family, that changes the narrative and sends messages to one another that says, you are God's child. And God loves you. And we're here to worship God with all of our life. Not just Sunday at 930. And we're here to obey God, understanding His word and saying yes, God, to that. And we're here to love people no matter what they look like, who they are. Because every person is an image bearer, bears the image of God, and we're here to love them. These are lessons on submission and humility that Peter writes. The first lesson is learn to submit. It won't be easy. The second is choose humility. It doesn't come naturally. And the third is this, you might have to wait, but it'll be worth it. You might have to wait in life, but it's going to be worth it. In verses 6 and 7, Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. In due time. Those are. Let's be honest with those words. In due time. Let's be honest. First of all, I'm not sure what that means because I never use those words, ever. In due time. And if it's what I think they mean, I don't really care much for those words. In due time doesn't mean my time, my timing, when I want it. It means in the fullness of time. It means when the time is right, God's time is what that means. I don't know anyone who likes to wait. I, I, I don't know anyone. In our information and technology age, we have become people who want what we want and we want it faster. But Peter writes to Christians, and remember, these Christians are on the brink of hardship, either suffering now or going to suffer in terrible ways in the coming days. The brink of hardship and troubles and suffering, Peter writes, submit to your leaders. He writes, choose to be humble. And at the right and perfect time, while you're suffering maybe even, God will lift you up. These are hard, hard lessons. And Peter understands that humility and submission are not natural for us. And if we choose humility, it will produce something. It will produce anxiety. In verse 7, he says, cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. And he wrote this in in chapter 4. He says, even if you're experiencing hardship and suffering, in in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and do good. Continue to do good even though you're suffering. And that's certainly going to make you humble and probably has to do something with submission in your life. Casting all your anxieties on God because trusting in the promise that he cares for you and he has the power and the wisdom to put that care to work in the best way. Trust in the opposite of pride in your life because that's the essence of humility. It's the confidence humility is. It's the confidence that your father is not over you to crush you but to care for you. And like the promise says, don't be proud, but cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So whenever your heart starts to get anxious about the future, whenever your heart starts to tell you that you know better, God doesn't know better, whenever your heart starts to say, I'm going to take charge of my life because I put God in charge of my life and it's not going so good, the whole world's telling me that I should do better. Whenever your heart starts to tell you those things, because it will, you need to tell your heart, why are you afraid of the future, heart? Remember the promises of God. I will not let anxiety cloud my future. Remember the promises of God. I will humble myself in peace and joy as I trust in the promises of God that he cares for me. And so do this. Would you preach to yourself? Preach to yourself this, to focus on obedience, not success. You need to preach to yourself, I need to focus on obedience to God, not success the way I define it. Don't think about the end results. Think about being obedient right now, today. Maybe even being obedient in this hour. Maybe even in this minute being obedient to God if that's what it takes. I I, um, I went to a wedding, Janet and I went to a wedding a few months ago, and, and I wasn't officiating. I was a, a guest at the wedding, and so we drove out, and it was a beautiful, it was on a ranch, and it was outdoors, and the wedding began, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of sitting in the back and wanting to be judgmental of this young officiant, this young pastor who's up there, and and, uh, and so he gets up there, and he does the most remarkable thing that I learned on that day. He gets up, and he welcomes everybody, and he says, this, we're gathered here today, and, and does all of this. He prays, and then he says, you know what? He tells the couple. He's friends with the couple. He says, I know you've been working so hard for this day. You've been preparing. You've been cleaning. You, you know, they lived on this ranch, and, and you know, you've been putting all this together. And here we are. We're finally here. And that's the way it is with, with, with weddings. It's you, get all the, you, know, you work hard, you get to that day, and you can't do anything. You know, you, you just, you're up there, you, you can't start wiping off tables and arranging chairs. You can't do it. It's, you're all done. And he tells this couple this. And he says, you, know, you can't do anymore. You've worked hard. And he says, but I want you to see what I see right now. He says, across this grass are family and friends that love you so deeply. And I really sense their love. And you're, you have your back turned towards them. But I, I want you to turn around and I want you to lock eyes with everybody here. And I want you to just sense this moment. This is a, such a beautiful moment with hundreds of people who love you and have been praying for you and are celebrating with you. Don't let this moment go by too quickly. So he turns them around, and everyone gets to look at them. And of course, pull out their phone and start taking pictures of them, but, but everyone gets to look at them, and they got to see everybody. And this young guy taught me something that day that I've been using in weddings about daily mindfulness, about being present in the moment. This moment with God and all the people of God that are right before you. We have this opportunity today to to be with one another, that you're sitting there with somebody. You may know them, you may not know them, but we're together and we're worshiping God together. And if you're not a follower of, of Jesus yet, welcome to the family of God who wants to be a community that goes against those negative cultural messages that says you're not good enough because God brought you here today if you have not yet turned your life over to God. And we are just a community of people that love God and want to obey Him and love one another and love all the people that God has made. And our hope is that people would go to heaven one day by giving their life over to Jesus Christ because He died on the cross and proved He was God. Three days later, He rose from the dead. We place all our hope in him. And so in this moment, we're not thinking about plaza time or the classes or what we're going to have for lunch right now. It's right now, in this moment, we're with God. Luke writes an account, and we're just going to close with this, that's, that is burned in my memory. And, and I hear this story, and I love reading it over and over again. It's in Luke chapter 10 of of Jesus visiting um, two ladies. And Luke writes this in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will, be, it will not be taken away from her. She's chosen what is better, and that, that moment will never be taken from her. Amen.